I will constantly challenge my biases and assumptions so that I can provide the best care to patients, regardless of color, creed, class, gender, or nationality. Do no harm. The Hippocratic Oath, which dates back to the 5th century BC, is well known as the traditional and sometimes required pledge that medical students recite at the beginning of their careers. I swear to fulfill this covenant. I pledge to use my... Though it exists in many different versions today, most iterations include a promise to commit to the equitable care of patients and to do no harm. In fact, the original Hippocratic Oath doesn't include the words, do not harm. But many medical schools and students have written their own versions that incorporate this concept along with a variety of other values deemed foundational to a career in medicine. But there's evidence that the words have proved hollow for many in the profession. Examples of bias in the delivery of healthcare are rampant. Black and indigenous communities and people of color across America face discrimination on a daily basis. This must change. But how do we move toward more equitable care for all? How do we prepare and train the physicians of tomorrow to be allies for everyone? In this episode, Dr. Malika Baer, AAMC Senior Director of Health Equity Partnerships and Programs, talks with Dr. Laura Goodrick-Rimes, an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Humanities and Bioethics at the University of Arkansas. Dr. Brian Giddens, Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at UAMS. Dr. Carol Major, co-founder of University of California, Irvine School of Medicine's Leadership Education to Advance Diversity, African, Black, and Caribbean. And Dr. Charles Vega, Professor of Family Medicine at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, and the Director of the Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community. This is our conversation on Beyond the White Coat. Hello, I'm Dr. Malika Fair, and I'm here today with Dr. Brian Gittens and Dr. Laura Gidry-Grimes from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and Dr. Carol Major and Dr. Charles Vega from the University of California Irvine School of Medicine. Thank you all for being here. This is a trying time in our nation and in the medical community where we are confronting two pandemics, one of COVID-19 and then acknowledgement that systemic racism is alive and well, both in our society and in the medical community. So this is an important conversation for us today to talk about racism and patient care. So let's jump right in. You know, at the beginning of medical school for me, I remember putting on the white coat and stating the Hippocratic Oath. Um, and you know, that's still being done today. Dr. Gidry Grimes, you were recently quoted in an NPR article about the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine's new oath and said, my fear is that too often the oath taking is a ritual for the sake of ritual. You have words washing over everything without meaning or impact. Can you talk a little bit more about what this oath means and how it can or should translate to how physicians provide care? Yes, thank you for having me. Edmund Pellegrino, who was a physician bioethicist, he talked about the explicit and implicit trust asked of patients in the oath and in everyday practice, as well as the significant moral burden of taking on that trust. I think this is right. The oath is a way for the newly minted professional to commit themselves to taking that trust seriously with all of its implications. And when you think about it, 
medical teams ask for an enormous, mind-boggling amount of trust, especially since they are usually complete strangers to patients and their families. The relationship is one of intense intimacy. And the nature of this trust from patients and the public, it changes over time because healthcare and its challenges are never static. What it means to heal and to serve evolves, and this should not be glossed over for the sake of ritual. Given the long history of racism, sexism, ableism, and other forms of bias and systemic discrimination in healthcare, professionals should be prompted to reflect on what medicine really means in this context, and the oath is an opportunity for this reflection. Thank you for that. And Dr. Major, do you have anything to add about your experience for UC Irvine? Um, yes, it, at UC Irvine, um, we do kind of a student-driven oath. Um, it was created back in the 19, I think 1977, and it's a kind of a variation of the normal Hipp Hippocratic Oath. You know, just going back to the Hippocratic Oath, I just remember myself saying that, and I actually stood up there in the front of my family and friends and, and you know, recited the Hippocratic Oath with pride. And so I think there is some importance and meaning to it because, you know, I'm here, I'm pledging my allegiance to medicine and doing the right thing in front of, you know, an audience full of people. And I think that there, there is some benefit to that. But, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, it was written by four or five BC, probably has very little meaning and pertinence to what we do today and to our students today. So I really like the, the one that the, the University of Pittsburgh, the students, their variation on the Hippocratic Oath, it, it had more meaning and they created it themselves. And so there's more passion and meaning behind the oath. And I think it was actually, you know, since it was crafted by the students, it um, definitely was more relevant. Um, and so it kind of made me think about maybe each year students should get together and write their own Hippocratic Oath. Um, and something that has meaning, you know, and it's coming from their hearts and they can be passionate about and, and really stand for, and it just wouldn't be kind of a ritual. It would be more of a declaration of, you know, their promise to do the right thing. Thanks for mentioning this passion and meeting that you had as a medical student. And as uh, you know, we see both in your institution and at University of Pittsburgh that these students have when they're creating this new Hippocratic Oath. You know, unfortunately, the enthusiasm that starts in the beginning of med medical school sometimes can dissipate because of the experiences that you have when you're there. And we know that many people of color, both working in medicine and receiving care as patients, experience racism in the healthcare sector. Are there any examples of times when you've experienced or witnessed racism in healthcare that you'd be willing to share? And how did that experience have an impact on the work that you do? And this can be, anyone can um, answer this question. Well, I, I think I can start off. Um, I experienced racism in healthcare pretty routinely on a routine basis. And actually probably the most egregious experience I've had happened, um, I'd like to say it happened 30 years ago when I first started, but it happened actually a little over a year ago um, when I was seeing patients and I had a patient's husband say that he didn't want his wife to see a black doctor because I probably wasn't as good as the other doctors and I probably had gotten into medical school on some affirmative action program and, and basically kind of berated me in front of other patients that were in the waiting room and in front of our office staff. And I was just, I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. First of all, it kind of took everything that I've ever accomplished in the past, you know, 25 to 30 years and 
basically reduced it to nothing. And regardless, it made me realize that regardless of how much I accomplish in my life and what I do to some people, I'm just only ever going to just be black. And it was a really rude awakening and it was painful and it was humiliating and it was really degrading um, experience. But it made me realize that I never ever can let my guard down. And that's what I understand. I just never let my guard down. I always have to kind of expect that there's going to be racism. And when it happens, I'm not so surprised and you know, I have better comebacks or I, you know, I have a better way of handling it, but I, I think let my guard down because, you know, I've been, I've been practicing for close to 30 years now and um, I let my guard down and it, and it shook me up a lot more than I wish it would have. Thank you. For, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Major. I, um, that resonates with me because, you know, sometimes we get in these professional positions. I'm a vice chancellor now, and you're thinking that you've sort of made it, right? We're in the club yeah. now, and you get these rude sort of reminders that you have not. Um, and you, when you asked that question, Dr. Fair, I was trying to figure out which example I want to share. And there's, there's several, but I'll go to one that's a little more pointed. And so like many academic health centers, we have mandatory flu shots, okay? And so it just happened to be a day. I was the I was I won't name the institution, but I was a, I was a leader in the, in the in the institution, an associate dean, and um, and so I was lined up to take my flu shot. I went with a colleague. Uh, to be fair, I was dressed down because I had to um, do a football practice, you know, for my youngest son at the time. So I had my sweats and things on on my way out of the door. Get lined up to get my flu shot. So my colleague, who was busy, you know, dressed in a business attire, you know, they asked her, so where do you work? And she was a director of, you know, finance or what have you. And then even without asking me, the, uh, the nurse who was checking us in turned to me and said, food service, right? Didn't even ask me where I worked. You know, and, um, and I was stunned by it. Uh, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I have a terminal degree, been in this space for almost 30 years. And just because I was a black male and dressed down. And so what's the implication? Um, like Dr. Major said, you always have to be on guard. And secondly, I wear a tie and jacket everywhere I go <laughs> so that I don't get mistaken for food service. Um, and, and now, you know, kind of mature in the space now, kind of a smart ass as well. So after I got my flu shot on the way out of the door, you know, um, you know, I said, well, I gotta go finish flipping those burgers. So, you know, that was my response, but that's how, just how you deal with those on some sarcasm and, and, um, and the like, and I corrected her obviously on the way in, but yeah, but it was telling though, it was telling. And I have, unfortunately I have lots of stories like that. Um, and also my office receives those reports as well. Okay. Where, um, people who are in professional environments um, get turned to and, and uh, given instructions on where to put their trash and things like that. So uh, women of color. And so, so that's a very recent one as well. There was um, uh, an ethics consult for a patient. Sorry, I, I should just say th thank you so much, Dr. Major and Dr. Gins for sharing those experiences. Um, well, what I was going to share is that uh, there was an ethics consult for a patient who refused to facilitate discharge out of the hospital because she did not want to work with the resident who is trying to make arrangements for her. 
And the resident told me when I arrived on the unit that she was openly racist, calling him a terrorist because of the color of his skin. And he had subjected himself to this treatment from her for hours that day, trying to work with her despite her treatment of him. And he called our service when he was just at a loss for how to proceed. He had other tasks that his attending had set him and he just couldn't make progress. I thought it was admirable that he was so committed to trying to help her, but it did make me worry whether he felt comfortable letting the attending or others on the team know how he was being treated. And I've wondered whether there are better safeguards that could be put into place for healthcare professionals in these situations, especially trainees. I thought about this. And, and, and of course, I think everybody has witnessed acts of overt racism uh, in clinical care. And, um, and obviously the, the person is most affected, you know, whether it's, you know, a staff member, a patient, um, you know, one of the physicians, um, they're the ones who are, are, the, are the real victims. And, uh, you know, it's truly impactful for them and, and oftentimes something they, they uh, carry for, for a long, long time and uh, will have a, a negative effect on the way they interact with that system uh, for, for that time. But I also just wanna point out that one thing I've really noted is that I, I've been on some pretty high functioning teams where we're taking care of complex patients. And when we see one of these events of racism, it really just craters the entire enterprise. It's amazing how it has, obviously the effect is, is most profound on those immediately involved, but, uh, but it really just drags everybody down. And when we are currently faced uh, with so much uh, stress and we are, I, I think, pushed to our, to our very limits as, as a team, um, it's, it's so debilitating to see, uh, to see acts of hate or racism that, um, that it, you know, it's, it's really hard to function and maintain that, that high standard we, we, uh, we want. Um, and it takes so much time to, to recover from it. So therefore, you know, prevention and, and having a proactive plan for managing those cases is critically important to me. And, and we have to take it uh, very seriously and show that the institution uh, really supports us, us in trying to provide the most equitable care as possible and treating each other always respectfully um, in the healthcare environment. So thank you all for sharing such deeply personal stories. And you know, one thing that Dr. Gittins mentioned that is concerning is that there are so many stories to tell. And I know that in our community, um, unfortunately there are countless acts that we have to respond to and come up with systems so that these stories won't be told again. Um, but fortunately, Dr. Vega, thanks for providing uh, some solutions at the end there um, of what things need to happen um, in the future. And this next question is for you, Dr. Gittins, because this is, as I mentioned, been a really interesting year where we've shined a light on the inequities that exist in our society um, with those communities that have been hardest hit by the pandemic, as well as our national reckoning over racism. Can you describe for us, you know, do you believe that this has caused a paradigm shift in medicine? And what is, what is different now? What still needs to change? Absolutely. I think um, it's always been there, you know, in one way or another, when we talk about um, healthcare disparities, when we talk about inequities with regard to healthcare and the like. Um, but the pandemic in particular, uh, along with it's sort of like a perfect storm with the pandemic and the social injustices and the highlight of those things coming together, 
um, to really um, highlight the issues. And I think that the change though, that I've seen at least at our institution, is it being reframed as a public health concern? Like literally social inequities and social injustices being reframed as a public health concern. Because as we know, you know, especially when you deal with a pandemic, you can't have one group uh, compliance, one group with access to healthcare, one group receiving healthcare, and the whole group or the whole universe of people not being impacted. And so that's, I think that's has been the biggest shift. Uh, for the, so what, what it did for us at least, and I believe nationally, is brought this to the forefront, uh, giving people the opportunity to serve as allies who may not have been in the past and to pay attention to this pervasive issue and recognizing that it's not individuals, it's not people making bad decisions choices, it's not just those things, but the issues are systemic, they're embedded. Sometimes I get asked to consult and people wanna talk about systems and the system's all messed up and the system, you know, the system's not messed up. The system is working just the way it was designed. The system is working just the way it was, it was designed. It's designed to, for some people to have access and to exclude some and to include others, et cetera, et cetera. What we have to do going forward is recognize that, um, get uh, familiar with those uncomfortable truths about the systems that we put in place, that we have socioeconomic barriers, we have implicit bias barriers, we have systems in place that to protect some and not protect others. Um, all the way, and oftentimes you just have to follow the money when we get into that conversation, but you look at payer mixes and things like that, how we sort things um, as well. So, but I think the, the biggest change I believe is, is rather than it being in this latent form and we're just hoping that it will go away, um, that it that with the, the broader appeal that it's been um, pushed to the forefront, we have to pay attention to it. And for the first time, I'm really excited because I, I see a lot of uh, resources uh, being put towards these efforts. Um, we talk about either bias trainings, we talk about people um, having consultants come in and really look at their systems. And this is across industries, including academic medicine. And um, so I'm really uh, excited about the potential um, of real change happening as a result of that, because I think that people are realizing that the status quo is no longer tenable. So in addition to that change happening right now, that change has to keep happening even with the next generation of physicians. Uh, Dr. Major, you lead the University of California Irvine School of Medicine's Leadership Education to Advance Diversity, African, Black, and Caribbean Communities. Um, and this is the first medical school program in the nation designed to specifically develop physician leaders who will serve the unique needs of ABC communities. Can you tell our listeners more about this work? Sure. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, uh, leadership and education to advance diversity in African, Black, and Caribbean communities, or LEAD ABC, is a new mission-based program, education program at UCI School of Medicine. And it basically stemmed from a realization of the importance of increasing the number of Black uh, physicians in our country. Um, you know, right now, Blacks make up approximately 30% of the U.S. population, whereas only 3.6% of the physicians in our country are Black. And so that's a pretty wide gap differential right there. 
And a lot of studies have shown that minority patients feel most comfortable with minority physicians. Um, it leads to greater patient satisfaction and um, actually assist patients in receiving more effective healthcare. So at UCI with LEAD ABC, we came up with this concept and this idea to develop the next generation of physician leaders that are committed to public service, social justice, and advocacy within ABC communities. So our students are actually getting out there in the community and, and actually making change. And the mission is to train and support students in medicine who wanna work with patients, who are really committed to working with patients from ABC communities and who wanna work on reducing the healthcare disparities within those communities. And um, it's only our second year that we've been in existence, um, but uh, we've actually started to see some really positive change and our students are embracing this challenge that we've um, given um, with uh, gusto and they're, they're very passionate and enthusiastic about making change in the community. So it's exciting. It's really an exciting thing to happen. Plus we actually have significantly increased the number of um, African-American students um, that have applied and that are in our, our medical school, at least first year class, we have 11 students out of 104, uh, which is a huge increase in our, our student population, African-American student population. So we're all very excited about the program. And thanks for sharing that information. You know, you mentioned the importance of having physicians who represent uh, the populations that we treat. Dr. Vega, in your opinion, how does this relate to Latinx communities? Well, I, I concur with Dr. Major and um, I'm uh, director of UC Irvine's program medical education for the Latino community. And as you probably know, uh, uh, Latinos are the plurality of um, uh, folks who live in California. Um, and we suffer you know, the same types of disparities in terms of uh, number of healthcare providers uh, who are Latino versus population. It's not too dissimilar from what Dr. Major uh, just described as well. So our program has been around since 2004, similarly uh, graduating physician leaders who uh, want to see patients and be involved with Latinx communities over time, uh, but really do something uh, beyond uh, patient care. And, and our uh, statistics uh, really speak for themselves. So 123 graduates who are out of training now, they're, they're done with residency and fellowship, um, the majority are taking care of poor uh, Latinx patients. Um, only 15% are in private practice. The rest are in uh, clinics like mine right now, a federally qualified health center. They're in some kind of county health system. They're working where the need is, is greatest. And over 50% are doing some kind of leadership outside of their clinical practice. So uh, they are involved with their local public health departments. Um, they are involved with schools. They're doing mentorship. 75% uh, of our students are doing mentorship and really helping that next generation of folks who really care and have experience with these communities and who want to go back and take care of communities uh, that need good healthcare providers, um, they're doing that work. And so we're really proud about this, uh, this movement. And I'll just say that you know, at UCI, these programs have really changed the entire culture of the School of Medicine because we have allies now who have great skills and assets that I never even considered necessarily when we were starting Prime LC, but it's moved the needle for our whole institution. And if other institutions I think can make uh, these similar kinds of changes, uh, we are looking at a very different type of healthcare professionals coming out of school with very different ambitions and goals. And that's how you start changing systems. 
You know, we started the conversation talking about the new oath that medical students can take. And Dr. Vega, you just mentioned that through the PRIME program and other similar programs such as LEAD ABC, it's changed the culture of the institution and impacted allies. Can um, any of you talk about what education and training is needed for all students to address racism and other forms of oppression? Well, I know that um, with Prime LC and with LEAD ABC at UC Irvine, um, our students actually are very much involved in actually rewriting the curriculum, you know, in, instilling, you know, a lot of different learning sessions in the actual medical school curriculum. Uh, they've actually, our students have kind of taken over the whole process and it's really been very impressive. And it's actually led to an increased interest from other students that aren't part of LEAD ABC or Prime LC to be involved in advocacy and allyship. Um, and it's been very overwhelming and very exciting um, new turn of events at the, at the university. And so I've been a part of several uh, academic medical centers. And I think for us, we're at the stage now at UAMS at least, where we're actually reviewing uh, the curriculum, you know, especially in medicine. I'm ensuring that um, you know, it's not full of bias, ensuring that it doesn't, um, you know, kind of slant one group against another and things like that. I think the next step, though, uh, once we just make sure it's not bad, not harmful, is to actually be more proactive and go in and start to ensure that it's promoting this notion of um, diversity, equity, inclusion. As part of our strategic plan, we're trying to prepare a culturally um, responsive healthcare workforce. And I think it starts with, um, starts with our oath, you know? It starts with, when you talk about culture, um, I was a former Marine, and I know how important indoctrination is with regard to culture as well. And I think the Hippocratic Oath is an opportunity to kind of set the foundation for that. But you also have to ensure that every action and the curriculum and the experiences after that build upon that initial foundation as well. There's consistency there, you have to be targeted with that. And so that's what we're working on. Um, Laura and I are working on, you know, looking at um, our, our oaths, looking at uh, things for across our health professions now, ensuring that applicable to um, the challenges of today, making sure it resonates with our students, um, but also working on creating a equitable environment whereby students can, can learn. And we have work to do, but I'm excited about the progress and the intentionality being associated with that. And I can just add that I, I love the concepts of, of creating you know, anti-discrimination, anti-racism uh, curriculum and, and building it proactively and, and creating frameworks. And the real challenge is to try to one, evaluate how it's doing and so I think that there's a lot of value that we haven't paid as much attention to in evaluating how our learners are performing in these areas. And we've developed some models uh, using objective structured clinical exams to, uh, to really look at that uh, here at UCI. And then I think it's also, while we want, I think, uh, good networks and institutions that we can rely on that, that you know, support these efforts over time so they don't just go away in the next academic year or you know, when something else new is, is flying in front of us, but they also have to be able to shift because 
culture is constantly changing and shifting and the priorities and the needs of our communities are changing as well. So it has to be baked into those institutions that they have some flexibility as well. And I think that will help us respond to new challenges as we've seen in 2020. Um, those new challenges can be uh, severe and uh, really require everything we've got. I would just add that I think part of what the curricular development should be looking at is the ways in which patients and families and healthcare professionals can be multiply marginalized, right? The point about intersectionality and how, uh, you know, someone's experience of racism can be interlocked with experiences of sexism or heterosexism or ableism. And so looking at different forms of oppression through that kind of lens and then what are trainees responsibility was their role in that. I think part of the challenge is to train students to consider the implications of complicity and complacency. You know, many of our students think that racism has and other forms of oppression has nothing to do with them or their future medical practice, or they think that racism is a problem for politicians and activists to address and not them. And I think there are two sort of big learning barriers here. One is a rejection of anything that makes them uncomfortable. And another is distancing themselves from how they are morally implicated by systemic issues like racism and other forms of oppression. So we have to create spaces that teach students how to live with discomfort, which is a big task, right? None of us likes to be uncomfortable, but I think it's one of the biggest learning points of 2020 uh, in a way is learning how to be uncomfortable and have those kinds of uh, really difficult conversations with each other and to have that introspection. Uh, the topic of racism and racial privilege should be making students uncomfortable and they should embrace that discomfort as an opportunity to be humble and to learn. And we have to emphasize the moral role that they have if they are silent and if they're passive on this issue. So to reinforce a lot of the points of my uh, co-panelists here, as far as uh, you know, being actively anti-racist, right? Being uh, actively involved in combating uh, bias in healthcare. And if they are passive, those are choices and they do reflect on moral character. And so having the, concept of everyday racism, the empirical work on everyday racism and other, other forms of oppression, as well as intersectionality, be part of ongoing curricular efforts instead of one-off events where students can opt out of learning and being uncomfortable, I think is really important. So you all have hit on, you know, two themes from 2020 about living with discomfort and being okay with that, uh, and also being ready for whatever new challenges we'll face. You know, we had several challenges this year, and there will probably be you know, new ones next year. I'd like to hear from each of you on the panel today as we wrap things up. What is the number one thing that academic medicine can do right now to address racism and patient care, to improve the health and health care for our patients of color, and to be ready for the next big challenge. Well, I think academic medicine, just we need to have a voice. We need to speak out more. And the way that I try to work with my students and um, other people that I might have any influence on is I do it by modeling. I, I show what it's like or what it means to take care of a patient, you know, regardless of their 
you know, socioeconomic status, you know, regardless of their color. Um, I, I show good modeling. I, I teach my students how to teach, treat patients with respect. And I think that, you know, that's one of the most important things. Students need to have good mentors to look up to. And, and I think that, you know, if you have a faculty that's full of, you know, really good, strong mentors that speak out against injustice and speak out against healthcare disparities and model good behavior to their students. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it'll be good for them. I think that it'll, academic medicine will have an important role in their lives. I would agree. And just to build off what Dr. Major was saying with regard to modeling and the like, I think we have to continue to be leaders in this space in academic medicine. I think that leadership uh, in of itself has the most um, instrumental impact on culture within an institution uh, through modeling, through providing adequate resources, through rewarding for behaviors that you want to continue to promote and punishing those behaviors that you want to, to mitigate. So leadership in itself, and then having that leadership and then having your sub leaders and your, your directors and your supervisors and having that cascade down through the organization, creating a new culture. Because um, I oftentimes say this, but diversity, equity, inclusion isn't something that you do. It ought to be how you do everything. And that's, that's the ethos that you want to permeate within the institution. Now, it only happens when the leaders decide that this is who we are and this is um, embedded in our, our DNA, a very fabric of who we are and to see everybody. And so what that does though, it starts to, uh, you start to sort out who you attract, the type of people who come to your organization and things like that as they interview and they feel and see this. And I think that's how you start, start to shift and your learners too will feel that energy and carry that forth as well. So. Um, if you want to create the type of organization that prepares our learners, um, you know, to live and practice in a more equitable way, it starts with the uh, improving the culture, optimizing the culture of the institution. And just to piggyback off of those excellent points, you know, schools and training programs should be ensuring that they have educational leaders and experts who can create the right kind of educational space to discuss these issues. Not just anyone can do this work well. And we need people like Dr. Gittens, Dr. Major, and Dr. Vega in programs all over the country. You need that kind of uh, expertise and the institution and that kind of commitment. And then we also have to understand that, you know, there's no one single answer or right way to do this. And in fact, a lot of that, when we talk about trying to be intentional about every single step of our process from, you know, the folks we, we have in our institution to the way we interact with each other, to the way we interact with patients and communities, um, this is, you know, work in progress for, for many of us. And so we have to be sure to share those processes and really, I think, develop some best practices and some standards. And that will help, I think, level set everything so that we can move forward as uh, a unit in academic medicine um, as, as a country. So you all have definitely highlighted some of those best practices today. You're the example of the leaders that you spoke of in your closing comments of modeling this behavior. Um, and I really appreciate you all joining us in this conversation on Beyond the White Coat um, to 
get us further along in this discussion on how we in academic medicine can address racism, how we can practice anti-racism, um, and how we can um, you know, not be complacent um, or complicit in our strive to improve health and improve health equity in our nation. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Gittens, Dr. Gidry Grimes, Dr. Major, and Dr. Vega for joining me today um, on this episode. The Beyond the White Coat podcast is brought to you by the Association of American Medical Colleges, a not-for-profit association dedicated to transforming healthcare through innovative medical education, cutting-edge patient care, and groundbreaking medical research. We'd like to extend a special thanks to our guest and the WMC staff who made this episode possible. I'm Stephanie Weiner, AMC Director of Digital Strategy and Engagement. And I'm Laura Zelaya, Digital Content Producer for the WMC. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Beyond the White Coat podcast, and we'll see you next time. Also from the AAMC, the Academic Medicine Podcast. Meet medical students and residents, clinicians and educators, healthcare thought leaders and researchers. Episodes chronicle their stories as they experience the science and the art of medicine and delve deeper into the scholarship shaping medical schools and teaching hospitals. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.